0: Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to
1: Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. Justin! Amy freaking <laughs> Romberg, how are you? I'm It's so great. nice to see you. I feel like it's been a long time.
0: I think it has.
1: Well, you actually get to come over to my house for dinner, yes. don't you? Yes,
0: we have that on the books now. And Justin, I'm going to give you a really big hug. It's like a year's worth of hugs. I'm just so ready yes. to see you guys.
1: All of the body parts will be pressed against each other for that hug. It's going to be long. Uh, yes. Uncomfortably long. <laughs> I
0: said that to somebody the other day. I said, I just miss, this is maybe going to sound terrible, I just miss the smush of other people. People's bodies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I have my five year old on me. Obviously, my wife, like, I'm used to that smush. but I was so good to I gave a friend a hug recently that I hadn't hugged in a long time now that we're both all vaccinated, and it was just like, oh, I just missed the smush of your body.
1: <laughs> we have this really interesting thing going on with the with the virus right now. With HIV and AIDS, right before PrEP came out, PrEP is a one a day pill that you take that makes you immune uh-huh. to HIV. Right before that came out, people stopped using condoms. Like gay men just stopped using condoms condoms they were like just sick of it they were over it and they started going to this thing called zero sorting where you would ask somebody's status what is your status and they would say oh I'm mm-hmm. negative you say oh I'm negative too okay well then great we can go play together or you would say mm-hmm. um, I'm positive oh I'm positive too okay great we can go play together so that, that so there was this huge campaign in San francisco that was like ask your status ask their status ask their status and I'm now finding myself I'll approach somebody and I'll be like and I'll go to shake their hand and they'll go like oh are you vaccinated and they're like yeah I'm vaccinated I'm like I'm vaccinated too and then we can like actually shake hands <laughs> and so, like, we're totally yes. zero-sorting people based on vaccinations now. It's been great. Like, I handed out a business card today. <gasps> craziness. Oh, yes. wow. Yep. Super craziness. Yep. So what's going on in your world, sis?
0: Well... I mean, obviously, as a newer agent, I have had more, obviously, more buyers than sellers at this point. Well, I've been lucky enough to have a listing or two, as you know, because you guys have staged them. Uh, A listing or two every month
1: since you first started, (laughs) because you're like the superstar (laughs) top gun.
0: I have been incredibly lucky. I just have been thinking a lot as I get further in and I, I start to feel like I know a little bit more about what in the world I'm doing. Not that I will ever reach the pinnacle of that in this business, I'm sure, which is I know what keeps so many agents engaged is that it's just so different all the time but feeling like I can take a breath and think about how to prep a listing and that, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to think about coming in and having conversations or with a seller? Like mostly these are people who have already decided they're working with me, yeah. but how can I help them along in this journey? And what are the most important things? Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I just have to point out, you just did that thing where I said, you're a superstar and you said, I'm just lucky. And yeah. let me just point that out to you just for one moment. We're going to talk right, about emotional right. intelligence later on in this, uh, in this episode. Shit. Amy, you God. really are. Okay. The harder I work, the luckier I get. And you're doing an awesome job. You are a really Thanks, good Justin. rookie agent. And I could probably just take the word rookie out of that and just say you're a really good agent. And these are words of affirmation because I love you so much. So I'm good job. I'm going to
0: work on just saying thank you. Thank good you,
1: job. Justin.
0: I'm not going to deflect. I'm not going to deflect. <laughs> thank
1: you. It's like in our bones. As women and gay men, it's in our bones to just not take compliments. I think if we can go around and like pushing each other's chins up and being like, hey, you are allowed to take a compliment. It's okay for each other and tell each other like, it's okay. You can take a compliment. Then we're just going to all be better together. So I love it. Okay. So listing prep. Listing
0: prep. What's Mm -hmm. going
1: on in your listings? Like what's the hardest part right now?
0: I I think the hardest part for me is that you have sellers who have a little bit of a pulse on the market. I mean, to some degree, right? They come in, they're aware it's a hot market, unless they've been under a rock. I have not had any of those sellers yet, but they're like, I am selling right now because it is a freaking amazing time to sell a house. And so why do I need to do anything? (laughs) So there's a little bit of that. I think my biggest challenge right now is supporting the prep that I feel like needs to happen. Mm Under all circumstances, even in a really hot market, and trying to help sellers understand that a little bit of prep goes a really long way to make a listing pop. Even in a market where the market's eating everything eventually, you know, most things pretty quickly, still there's a lot of value in
1: prep. It's a little bit different for us because... We are staging everything. So we're staging condos and apartments and houses and track homes and model homes. And we see all of them. And there are definitely parts of the market, like single family residences that are flying off the market. And then we also are seeing things where we're getting folks that are calling us that are like, I've had my house on the market for five months and it hasn't done anything. Help me, please. We'll get even more of those calls in the fall because there are a lot of houses going on right now, late spring, early summer, that are putting on the market in a crap condition and they're asking top dollar and they're not going to get it for it. There is no crystal ball. Of course, we are fresh out of those. But there is the double comparative market analysis. So I like to add the D to the front of the CMA. So a DCMA. And Uh that is when we do two CMAs, we show one to our clients, if you do absolutely nothing, if you leave it exactly the way that it is and you stay occupied, here are five houses that are comparable to yours in this neighborhood that did the exact same thing to you. And here is what they sold Mm -hmm. for on a cost per square footage basis. And so Mm -hmm. if we take that and we analyze it and pull out your square footage, this is what you can ask for your property. Now, here are five houses that did everything that they were supposed to do in the same neighborhood and they're similar to yours, and here's what they sold for. So, if you do absolutely squat nothing, this is what the market is telling us that your house is worth. This is not me telling you what the house is worth. This is what the market is telling your house is worth. Now, if you do everything, mm-hmm. then this is what it comes down to. And maybe that CMA tells you that it's not worth it to do everything because they all sold for the same price anyway. That being said, I can tell you that that has never been the case ever because pretty yes. things sell for more money and ugly things sell for less money <laughs> in the history I'm gonna write that of on a the world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm a, that's my new sticky note. Pretty yeah. things sell for more money. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely true. Ju- you yes. never
1: go into yeah. the uh, auto dealership and be like, "Yeah, I uh-huh. want the one that smells like vomit." No one's yeah. ever gonna do that. In <laughs> fact, we were we were looking at used cars. There was a, a used car that was like okay, and there was a used car that looked awesome, but it smelled like vomit. And I was like, "Yeah, we're not buying that yeah. one. We're not buying." No, I can't. Yeah. I cannot. To think that looks don't matter in people's largest. Status symbol. There are three hierarchy of needs in housing. The first layer of need is physical. It's going to protect me from bullets and rain. Okay, that's like the first layer, and that is like just taking care of your basic needs. That's like if you're homeless, you build your tent underneath an overpass, not in the middle of the road, because in the middle of the road you'll get run over. Underneath the overpass, you won't get rained on, it, it won't get run over. That's just basic physical needs. The second physical need that we take care of, the second need that we take care of in that hierarchy of needs, is what we call comfort. And if you think of like, remember that. TV show Roseanne back in the day, comfort was Mm -hmm. the only thing they were concerned about. Nothing really matched in their house. They had two lazy boy rockers, a bunch of quilts. Like It was just comfortable. It wasn't about status at all. So it met their needs of safety and then it was comfortable. They worked Mm -hmm. their butts off all day long. They came home and they wanted to have a place to sit down. Our third hierarchy of needs is status. That's what housing does for us. Mm -hmm. It says to the people around us, this is what I can afford. This is what my level of taste is. This is what I hold dear to my values. I'm going to show you how great this is. And so to assume that status doesn't play a role in where we are in terms of owning homes and a vast majority of the homes that we are selling in Portland are expensive enough that we are past the comfort and safety levels we're up into status. And so nobody wants to walk into a house and be like, I want my status to be that I live in a junkyard or that my house smells like cat pee. No one wants that. They want their houses to be pretty and they want all their friends to come over and say your house is pretty because this is what drives our self-worth. As sad as it sounds. Our self-worth is driven by the material yeah. things that we own. This is the reality of the situation. We all want to pretend like this isn't real, but when it comes down to it, it is. That's where it comes from. I teach a class called The Rich, the Famous, the Husbands," and it's about different types of luxury buyers and identifying oh. how long money has been in a family to identify what is going to be important to them in terms of their housing. There are four types of luxury buyers. It's a super interesting class. The only reason I know anything about this is because my parents won a lawsuit when I was 10 years old. Uh, my mom sued Court. Corning over breast implants. Do you remember this case at all back yes. in the day? Yes. Yeah, I, so.
0: I have never heard this story, <laughs> Justin.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we
0: can call this the secret histories of Justin. This is I'll, amazing.
1: I'll, I'll rip through this quick. Essentially what happened was my mom won this lawsuit. She had sued Dow Corning for silicone breast implants that had ruptured and make her sick. And in 1984, they won the lawsuit. In 1987, my parents were awarded $1.7 million. And in 1987, that was a lot of cash. And we became one of the Four types of luxury buyers, which is what's called stumblers. Stumblers are folks who fell face first into their money. They won a lottery. They were a uh, sports star, so they didn't really have to get good grades to start a business, anything like that. They kind of just stumbled into their money. There's first generation, mm-hmm. which is people that like started their businesses. Usually didn't really do it with an education. Started a business, made money, got rich through that. There are second generation inheritors, which would be typified by somebody like Kim Kardashian or a uh, Paris Hilton, where everything is status all the time. Your parents made money, mm-hmm. and they will pay anything for you to make sure that you are in the status of old money. And old money is the third type. That's multiple generation. These people understand that there are both benefits and drawbacks to having money. And they've been raised by people who are raised by people who are raised by people who understand those benefits and those drawbacks. And so they all buy houses very, very differently from each other. And all Mm -hmm. of them, the one thing that they all have in common is that it is all status-based. All of it. Looks most certain. They matter. Okay. So that was a long answer to a really short question. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Wow. But that was great. No, that was so interesting. And I think, I don't think I'd ever broken it down in that way before and thought about sort of the different levels. I mean, I also think it's interesting to note that where Portland is in terms of housing prices, do I have a roof over my head and is it it going to be
1: comfortable? Like
0: most, most of our housing inventory is popped up above that.
1: Way, way, way above that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. If you were looking for housing in Portland that only meets those needs of safety, you're looking at low-income housing and you're looking at homeless shelters, yeah. you know, tents, things of that nature. There's, our yeah. housing market starts at what, 180 or 280 for like the tiniest little spaces and yeah, goes up from easily. there. That's yeah. somebody who has to get a loan to buy a house. And so to be able to get a loan, you got to have yeah. a job and to, be able to get a job, you got to have an education. So I think this
0: will give me something to chew on as they go back and, and start these conversations. One listing in particular, who's just basically like, this goes without saying, I want the most money possible, right? Yes. But he says it sort of overtly. And I think most of us are a little bit more discreet about how we advertise like, oh, it will be nice to go over asking. And he's just like, <laughs>
1: it give has to me happen.
0: the most money I possibly can. And I will certainly f- find myself thinking about our conversation, stepping into this with him.
1: When you run that double CMA also take into account that like, hey, if we do nothing, this is how much going to cost to get your house ready for market. If we do all this stuff, this is how much it's going to cost. And so Maybe a ten thousand dollar investment ends up being a hundred and fifty thousand dollar return on investment for ten thousand bucks to make hundred and forty off of that. That's a darn good that's investment. Good deal. You don't stock. really
0: get that return very often.
1: <laughs> no. And so for those types of folks, it really comes down to showing them return on investment. And you would be amazed yeah. how many people do not know what that term means. So many people have no yeah. clue what return on investment means because so many of us yeah. work paycheck to paycheck. We have never in invested in anything in our entire lives and really our house is the first time we've ever done that yeah. it's a concept that almost needs to be taught when you think about home economics they're still teaching people how to like balance checkbooks we don't balance checkbooks anymore teach about return on investment yeah. that'd be good teach them how to fill out a w-2 yeah. these are the things that should yes. be taught in school that we are not taught well thank you for that justin julie halter is in i think she's may have jumped in the hot tub she brought her bathing suit with her should we go grab her real quick absolutely all let's right let's go get her cool. yay julie all right i'll all be right back. <laughs> okay. All right. Amy, I just went back and I got Julie Halter. She. I had to pull her out of the hot tub because she's just born to like absorb heat. She just got back from Scottsdale, Arizona. She loves our hot tub in the green room. She's super excited. Julie, how are you?
2: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
1: Doing so good. Let me introduce my co-host to you, Amy. Amy Rombert. This is Julie. Julie, this is Amy. Julie,
0: I'm so glad to meet you. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad to meet you as well. And I hope you brought a little sunshine back because um, we're ready for it here. So I know, not today, I know. but soon. Maybe
2: (laughs) I get it. I mean, I'm ready for sun all day. Every day is Justin kind of eluded. I'm solar powered. I got to have sun, but (laughs) let me tell you, we need rain here. And so unfortunately with that comes what we're having.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, hopefully the warmth of the hot tub will get you through a a couple of days at least.
1: (laughs) So Julie, tell us about your history. Where did you grow up? How many brothers and sisters did you have? Like, where did you go to school? What did you, how did you end up here in real estate?
2: I grew up on a small hobby farm outside of Woodburn, Oregon. Great place to grow up. Great place to also grow up and leave.
1: I love it. Yes. Uh-huh. You know,
2: I loved it. I had. I have to admit, I feel sort of guilty sometimes talking about this, but I had a beautiful childhood. I have one younger brother and we grew up on a couple of acres and, you know, one level ranch, of course, with a barn and <laughs> had horses and things like that. And I was really involved with the St. Paul Rodeo all my life. I still am. And it's funny because now when people meet me that don't know the, that part of my past, they say, what? You grew up on a farm? You were a horse girl. Yes, of it. course, of <laughs> course. So I grew up there. I went to cosmetology school and I was a hairstylist for 22 years prior to getting into real estate. I attempted college. I stunk at it. I flunked out and lied to my parents because they were paying for half my rent. So embarrassing. But you know, we all have a chapter in our book that we think, well, no, maybe we'll just kind of gloss over that portion. <laughs> I've always been very action oriented. So the idea of sitting in a cubicle from nine to five and having a for sure paycheck every two weeks, while that sounds lovely at times now that I'm in real estate, I, my biggest fear in life is to be bored to tears. And that was no offense to the corporate people. We need those two. I just knew it wasn't for me. And so I've always been a very results driven person individual. When I started working jobs right away, I loved the fact that when I was in sales, being acknowledged and rewarded for being able to connect with clients, whatever that job was. And I've had just about every job under the sun.
1: I mean, that's half of styling hair is not it's not necessarily about the technical part of styling hair, but getting people to like what you did and to connect with them emotionally. That's half of a real estate agent's job is just to find some kind of emotional connection. And if you're doing that eight times a day, every hour all day long, you're getting good at this. eight
2: times a day try about 20 oh, I had, 20 times I a, a day sti- there you go oh yeah. my gosh when i was a stylist i had figured out how to how to work three clients at the same time and no one was neglected everyone had 100 of me at all times yeah. when i needed to be there so i would move tushies wow. into different chairs and um, i worked really hard in fact i worked so hard i made great money i was able to support my daughter as a single mom still do um but it did take a toll on my body i started to have carpal tunnel so i had surgery on my wrist for that i knew it was time to kind of hang the shears up and maybe put down the blow dryer when I realized oh now I have to start getting cortisone shots in my hip
1: people don't understand how physical that job is yeah
2: yeah I mean try holding your arms up all day and I also learned that I can negotiate like no other because if you've never cut a woman's bangs too short and gotten her to come back, you, my friend, have a a future in negotiation and client retention.
0: (laughs) I'm hearing all these things, the being totally present with clients in three different chairs and sort of orchestrating that space plus the negotiation. I mean, it seems like all these things just lined you up for what being in this business entails.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I love real estate. My family parents, I've been very fortunate, they're entrepreneurs. So Mm -hmm. it's in my DNA. I can't deny it. And they invest in commercial properties across the country. We're very small time in comparison to many others. You know, with my father investing with my grandfather, his dad, and at the time, his three living brothers. Christmas, Easter, cousins' birthdays, you know, every every family get-together, it was the men were in one room talking about business and the women were in another. And all of us kids were, grandkids were, you know, downstairs playing. But I really liked to hang out with the grownups because I found that what they were doing was pretty interesting. And so I was learning about escalation, you know, <laughs> <laughs> clauses and price per square foot on a warehouse. And, you know, for me, that's pillow talk. I, I enjoy great.
1: it. I had a friend in, in my one of my early careers that was from Woodburn. And whenever she would, I would say, like, when somebody would say, where do you live? And she would go, oh, Woodburn. And I was like, no, 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 no. You can't be from a place and say, ah, oh, Woodburn. I'm like, pretend like Woodburn always has an explanation point after it. So where are you from? And you say, Woodburn. So whenever somebody <laughs> says they're from Woodburn, I'm like, there's an explanation <laughs> point at the end of Woodburn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: And, you know, our- I I enjoy going back to my hometown and seeing how much has changed. I mean, the the real estate there is going crazy as it is everywhere else. But, you know, it's changed a lot, too. In fact, I drove my daughter down the dead end road that I grew up on. And she says, really, that's where you grew up? She just couldn't believe it because we live so differently now in town. You know, I I had to ask myself as an adult. All right. I got two options here how I want to live. I can either be a manicured self or a manicured piece of property. I don't have time or the manpower for both. So I live in town.
1: <laughs> I hear it, girl. I hear it. I, I love going back to Boise. I do not want to live there. <laughs> So you end up in real estate and you land at Sotheby's. So how was that decision made? And was that the first place that you went to? Was that your first choice?
2: I courted many suitors, if you will, of, of <laughs> every single brokerage in in town. And in fact, I got quite a few interviews. A few of them, a few of them said, "You really need to go and get some experience. We're not really a training brokerage," which is that's fair. You know, you have to know your business module. The minute I sat down with my, she's now our managing principal broker, Dori Olmstead, I knew that Sotheby's. Was the right fit for me. I am very comfortable in the luxury market, so to speak. And for me, luxury is all about a level of service. It's not really a price point. It's how we interact and, and the level of integrity and how we service our clients, quite frankly. And so I knew I had found home the minute I sat down and started really researching the marketing and how they use their language in all of the ads. And, you know, when you look at Sotheby's International Realty, obviously, across the globe, they really are known for representing the most luxury and in high demand properties in the world. So why wouldn't I want to start at the very bottom of those that are already at the top? I mean, if you're going to learn, learn from the best. So I fibbed to my broker and told her I was taking my test a week or two after I actually did, just in case I didn't Mm. pass. As soon as I got my paperwork that I passed, I went right down to the office and said, Okay, I'm ready to start today. <laughs> Not really understanding the process. Truthfully, it was they took a huge chance on me, which I really appreciate. And I mm-hmm. don't take it for granted at all. Because obviously, th- we have our local and global brand at stake as well. And I right. promised them in my interview, I said, Listen, if you don't hire me and take a chance on me, this may be the biggest mistake you make of 2017. <laughs> I hate to tell you. <laughs> and they did. And so <laughs> I sat in that office and and I learned every single aspect of the brand and the company and office procedure. I'm still learning every day. But I do not believe in fake it till you make it. I believe in yeah. learn it until you become
1: it. I love the confidence. It's so strong. So tell me, is it mostly the confidence that separates you from the rest of the pack? What do you think makes you special that people say I want to hire Julie Halter?
2: I'm not very good at complimenting myself. So I'll just tack on to what you said. I have had every single job known to man, I have been told how to do things that I didn't 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 do a particular job correctly, and I think that builds a lot of self-confidence you get to be corrected. And I think one of the main problems in today is that a lot of people don't want to fail. And I'm not afraid of failure. I have failed at a lot of things in my life. And I look at them as I know, this is kind of corny, but lessons or blessings, quite frankly,
1: we talk about all the time, we talk about opportunities constantly around here, and they happen constantly. constantly. So yeah, we're with you. Yeah. Yes,
2: if you're not making mistakes, then you're not really pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And I want my comfort zone to be huge. Here's the other part of why I think people, you know, my clients appreciate the level of service that I offer them and who I am as an agent. I'm more than just an agent, obviously, even though it is a huge part of my life. I'm not afraid to say I was wrong. I'm not afraid to say I don't know the answer to that. I will find out and I always follow through every single time yeah. because to the outsider looking in being a real estate agent looks very glamorous and at times it is you know when staging first gets placed for an example that's a really glamorous day
1: you make it look glamorous i don't know if the rest of us do <laughs> <laughs> i don't
2: know you know spain archer makes it look pretty good too <laughs> you know and that's really the the icing on the cake of all of the groundwork that you've done to get to that point of having a property pr- getting it prepared for market i really love what i do and i do spend nights worrying about it so sometimes. I want to show up for my clients. I want to keep them within contract. I want to Mm -hmm. make sure that I don't leave any money or any opportunity on the table for them. And with buyers, I want to make sure that I don't just get them into a property, but I want them to be in the perfect property. That's the right fit in all the elements, you know, location, what they've told me they want. Sometimes they don't exactly know what they want. They just know how they want to feel when they walk into a property,
1: we're headed into a post COVID world pretty quickly here, fingers crossed that it doesn't come back. A lot of people made some massive changes in their lives during COVID. And there were some aspects of my life that I know I want to hang on to. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you have taken on during a COVID world that you would like to continue that tradition? we'll have to make conscious decisions around doing that. And how are you making sure that you continue to do those habits?
2: You know, as humans, I think that we're all very very much so creatures of habit, whether that be a good habit or a bad habit. And I've said this before in other interviews, being in quarantine, unfortunately, didn't really change my life very much. In fact, it opened up a lot of opportunity for me and I'm sure a lot of other agents that we had time to really sit and look at how we do our processes and procedures with clients. So one of the things it's, it seems very simple, but it's a huge time saver. Instead of physically me taking my booty box and the booty covers and the now hand sanitizer and all of the marketing pieces, I used to have all of those set up in my garage in little kits. And then I would have to physically go there and drop it off. Well, now I just have it delivered straight from Amazon. Duh, it just seems so simple. But sometimes that's why I can't figure it out because I overthink it.
1: So by the time you walk into the house, it's already there waiting for you.
2: Right. It's same with flyers. You know, our beautiful brochures that I have printed up. They always say, do you want those delivered to the office? Uh, no, deliver them to the property of which they need to arrive at eventually. Anyway,
1: the address is on the flyer. You'll see it. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> You'll see it. Yes, that's that's the address. I mean, why not skip as many steps in that process as possible so that you can streamline? Mm.
0: Yeah. And it seems like possible. And COVID allowed you an opportunity to sort of reflect on some of these different pieces and put some different things into place.
2: 2020 was a bit of a, what do they would call it, train wreck dumpster fire <laughs> yes. for all of us. And I, we're still not 100% in the clear with everything that's going on globally. I'm really thankful that, you know, we're coming out of this ahead and the real estate market's really strong. I think it was good for me to spend even more time at home, essentially, self-evaluating at times. I mean, yeah, it was, it was brutal. We all probably drank a little too much, ate a little too much, <laughs> watched too much Netflix. I think it was a growing process.
0: And it sounds like, Julie, from what you've said, that you're always looking for that learning edge. You're always looking for the, the places where you can keep growing.
2: I was trying to think. Justin and I were talking about this the other day, but with buyers, you know, when you're a newer agent, which I'm not a newer agent anymore, but you know, you get so excited to work with someone. And sometimes I would be in the past, I was a little anxious about asking them, Well, are you pre-approved? The ask, right? Now it's one of the first questions. I say, okay, well, is your paperwork in order for your loan? For you know, for your financing, who are you financing with? I need I need documentation. Trust but verify. Because there is no sense of me driving all over town with clients if they're not ready to pull the trigger, so to speak, because then they're just going to get emotionally attached to a property that they're not qualified for yet on paper.
0: Julie, I came into this market just right about the time that COVID was (laughs) sort of shutting everything down. So for me, thinking about that, it's just too much of, it's also like putting everybody at risk if you're working with buyers and showing things when they're not already pre-approved. It's like COVID sort of made us all think about the safety of that. Too and and it seems like I've been advised that that's the first thing we talk about now because nobody wants to take somebody around only to discover they're not pre-approved and then also the risk that was involved in showings, especially initially when we didn't know as much as we do now. You know, even if we were masked and hand sanitized and all of that.
2: And I do think it's wise as well. I mean, you know, certainly what else it's it's done for me with buyers is you can do so much virtually now. It's just amazing. I mean, I just came off of being out of the state for almost twelve weeks. And my business has not skipped a beat. In fact, it actually grew. I do believe that when I'm a happy agent, I sell more real estate. (laughs) Yes. When I'm a happy person, because I'm not looking at the problem, I'm looking at the solution instead of the problem. During COVID, I sold multiple properties. I know that other agents did as well, where my clients were out-of-state clients and they hadn't even seen it in person. So I would FaceTime them, you know, driving up to the property. And I never took into consideration that by myself going to these properties and showing them virtually that I was putting myself at risk. And so in doing that, it was a great process to really sit down and, and listen to what my clients wanted and what they did not didn't like about certain properties so that I didn't have to go to as many as if they were here physically.
1: There's this this idea that we talk about a lot with this abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And, you know, when you're first starting out, And most people start from a place of scarcity because you don't have any clients. And so you're like, you want to look at houses? Yes, we'll look at houses. You want to do this? Yes, we'll do this. And we talk about the idea (laughs) that we bring on any client. And being able to stop and say, hey, are you pre-qualified? It's not like this person is trying to be malicious. They're saying, I want to look at houses. I'm not pre-qualified yet. They just don't know. And so there there are kind of two types of energy vampire. There's the ones that just don't understand. And there's the ones that are doing it on purpose. And being able to say, here, let me re-guide you. We're going to go over here and talk to this person we're going to get you pre-qualified first and when that once that's done then we'll take care of you the hope is that that person understands that you're helping to guide them and to do that in a gentle way and then the hope is that once they are qualified then you can come back and you can work with those folks but sometimes it's like folks don't want to be guided and they don't want to be told and they're like well i'll just find somebody else to do it like okay go right ahead you know my time is
0: precious yeah
1: (laughs) How do we decipher between those intentional vampires and those unintentional vampires? How do you use emotional intelligence in real estate? Like talk to and like, what the hell is emotional intelligence? Can you like just kind of lay it down for us?
2: Sure. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on the definition of there's book smarts and then there's street smarts. And it's pretty rare that you'll meet someone with both. Right, someone who's extremely intelligent and can read something one time, and they knew everything in school, probably don't, may not know how to change a tire, like in person. They could explain it to you, but they maybe, perhaps, they couldn't do that. And I think that's where a lot of my childhood, growing up, and getting bucked off a horse, and you know, wrecking every single motorcycle, and you know, just being outside and cause and effect. With emotional intelligence, I use it. Of course, it's just a part of who we are. But I'll give you an example. When I walk into a listing appointment, and and then I look at the, the. history, you know, and I have my intake sheet, you know, you do all the real estate things that that one does. And I think, okay, well, this woman has lived in this home for 20 years. Well, what happens in 20 years? You know, there's all options, married, unmarried, kids grown, and they move out. I mean, those are all memories. Those are huge life events that all happen potentially in that property. So to that seller, it's not a property, it's their life. It's a passport, if you will, of everything that they've gone through. Coming at a seller like that, and having the gentle empathy, but also, keeping their eye on the future that, okay, this served a purpose for a time. It called on me because you're telling me this doesn't serve a purpose for your life now. So I want to get you into the right property so that you can live the best life that you would like to and where so that you can have a great day every day. And you you had many great days here. That's part of the value of this property. Totally different mindset than someone who purchased a property and they're doing a 1031 exchange. They're not going to be emotionally attached to it. They may be emotionally attached to the money but it's a completely different angle when you come in.
1: They're talking dollars per square foot, whereas your 20-year client is like, you know, talking emotional pounds per square inch, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, and it, it means a lot to those sellers too that when you walk the property to ask a lot of questions, you know, tell me about the irises that you planted, mm-hmm. you know, how many years have they been here and, you know, how do they do in the spring and things like that, just all the, the key points to that. It's really yeah. tough and not yeah. everyone's moving for a happy reason either. And so if you're coming at someone who's maybe dealing with the death of a spouse and they and they need to sell their property, for example, there's a lot that goes into that. You you really have to handle those clients with care. And it becomes not a transaction at that point. I mean, obviously it's my responsibility to keep them within contract but it's also my human responsibility to take care of them. So yeah. I will check yeah. in with them in the evening. Are you doing okay? I know that yesterday was may have been a bit of a challenge for you to have so many people walking through your house and perhaps right. criticizing
1: it. Portland, Oregon is the world's capital of passive aggressiveness. And I think emotional <laughs> intelligence has to be so important because you know, when your upstairs neighbor says to you, well, I had a downstairs neighbor who said, I always take off my shoes when I walk in my house. And when I realized what she was asking me is, can you guys take off your shoes? Because you're Footfalls are really loud. But she didn't say that. And I was like, Good for you. Uh okay, <laughs> Congratulations. whatever. Congratulations. Yeah, I, I just- <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you don't if you don't have that little bit of the emotional read there, it's really hard to understand people in Portland and to a certain extent Seattle because they won't necessarily tell you what they want. They will tell you something else adjacent to that, but not necessarily what's going on. And it's it's it takes a bit to like figure out how people here talk because we're so afraid of offending or putting somebody else off that we just won't say what we want. Having that emotional intelligence to be able to like check in and be like, "Hey, yesterday must have been hard for you." And I I think that may be your superpower that you're able to tell when things are going on with people before they even know it maybe (laughs) you know
0: and walking somebody through a transaction holding space for that while also keeping your eye on why they called you julie i like that you you noted that just kind of keeping things moving forward and at the same time allowing space for the emotional process of it I think there's so much value
2: in that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not in the real estate business. I'm in the relationship management business. My goal is always for every person that's involved in every sale or purchase to feel good about it when we walk away. That's when I know it's a good deal. My dad always taught me that a deal is only a good deal when everybody can walk away and feel that they were, that they were acknowledged, that they were respected that they feel good about it and that's when i know i've i've been successful so to speak it really matters to me how my clients feel not just after but during this process and then continuing on that relationship far beyond. I see agents all the time, one night stand on their clients.
1: They won't be allowed long.
2: Well, that's, well, we know what happens when you have a bunch of one night stands, right? That to me is really where the relationship starts. Not to go too far off a tangent, but I love social media for that because if I see on Facebook, let's say a client gets a new puppy. Well, guess what I do for my strategic gifting? I'll send the, the new puppy a little gift. And yeah. it's not that I'm manipulating, it's that I'm acknowledging because I really do mean it that I'm happy for them. And- that's- Absolutely. It's just a really great tool to keep in touch.
1: We I, somebody once referred to me. They said, "Justin, you're very manipulative." I was like, "Huh? I didn't." It didn't sound like a compliment to me, and so I went back and I talked to them, and I said, "When you said that, did you mean that in a negative way or a thoughtful way?" And they said, "No, no, no, I mean it in really in like a in a positive way." And I was like, "Oh, well, maybe we can think of a different word." And then we, what we figured out is that the opposite side of the coin of manipulative is thoughtful. When you're when you see that your person got a puppy, and you're like, "Oh, I can make contact with them." and I can acknowledge that they got this new thing and I can do it. That's not being manipulative. Manipulative would be when you do that in a way that is a win lose situation where you get to win and they get to lose. Thoughtful is when you both get to win and so they get a reminder that you exist and you get to send them something for their puppies so they both get a win out of that and that's thoughtful. That is not manipulative and I think in our extremely woke cancel culture we can take anything, even a thoughtful person and twist it around and say you're manipulative and that really bothers me like i I was told the other day that like you have a toxic positivity you're so positive that it's toxic and i was like what is (laughs) what is going on And, and it's part of our culture right now that we can take anything and turn it into a negative. And we tend to jump to that negative so quickly. And so, no, I'm telling you right now, from the mouth of Justin Beard, you are not manipulative, you are thoughtful. And I appreciate that. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Well, and to your point, Justin, you know, with social media being in our faces constantly, and with agents, you know, constantly being in front of us, it does get a little overwhelming. If you're posting one thing, but you're living your life in another way, I mean, obviously, there's certain things that happen. Happen in our personal lives that we don't want to broadcast everywhere. Some things are meant to be yes. somewhat private. Yeah. I mean, obviously, right? But if you're not coming from a place of what matters to you, then it's not going to be authentic. And any action that you that you do for your clients or even for your colleagues is going to reek like commission breath. If you think about it, it's like, ugh. you can just tell that they're doing this because they want something from you. That's not how I operate.
1: There's a happy balance between vulnerability and authenticity and privacy and outwardness. Just because we don't air all of our dirty laundry doesn't mean that we're not being authentic. I choose to show the aspects of my life that I want to show, but there are some things that are private to me that I hold close. Like, the one that bugs me the most is like, gaping wounds when people like damage their bodies and then they take pictures of them (laughs) and put them on Facebook. I'm like, now it's authentic. That's true. That is authentic, but there are there is a time and place for privacy as well. You know, I had my my ACL replaced, and it was disgusting. Did I take a picture of it? Absolutely, because I wanted to tell my husband, but I did not <laughs> right. put it on Facebook. Like, and because I didn't post on Facebook, doesn't mean I'm not being authentic. It's just right. there's some things that are gross. Like I don't well, want to see that. I'm not. I'm, I don't want to see a picture of your grandma dying in her hospital bed. Oh, this is something no, that's filter, private. Filter. Keep it to yourself.
2: Yes. So it's no different with clients. If you know, being able to say. This This is what I want or this is what I don't yeah. want, whether it comes to your life or a property or what you're looking for. If you can't just own it, a lot of people have a really hard time with that. And so being able to read between the lines of my clients and what they're telling me, but what I'm sensing from them with what they're saying, how they're saying it, their body language. It's not that I'm scanning, like searching for abnormal abnormalities. It's not that. <laughs> it's that I'm trying to listen to them on a much deeper level so that I, I can be proactive and intuitive and remember that because not all of us know how to say exactly what it is that we want or need from our life. And at the end of the day, the biggest commodity that we have that none of us really scale is time. You don't know how much of it you're going to get. You don't know when it's going to be done. And so therefore, if I can do anything to save time for my clients, then I'm giving them a gift.
1: Gen X had this saying as parents when when our kids were little little, we would we, I would always hear his parents say, "Use your words." And I sometimes I feel like <laughs> saying that to our clients, like, "Use your words. Tell me what you want and I can do it right. for you." <laughs>
2: Exactly. But it's like telling a woman to calm down. Never in the history of the world when a oh, woman never needed works. to calm no, down uh-uh. and yeah. someone said that to me, just calm down. I have never calmed down. It's heightened me, right? <laughs> yeah. So if, if you yeah. ke- if you continue to like beat into your client's head, just tell me what you want. Tell me what you want.
1: Oh, you can't say it. Yeah, it's yeah. completely ineffective. Yeah,
0: yeah. and that's yes. what the process is about. That's why you're there. That's why you're holding the emotional space for them. That's why you're kind of walking them through. And it's your job. I think in some ways you're the translator, right? You know, they yeah. tell you one thing and then slowly you start to realize, oh, it's actually not that they're calling it that, but maybe it's more this. And I think right. that's when it comes together. All those different pieces, the emotional intelligence, being able to hold people's emotion, I think is such a part of that.
1: And by the way, the screaming child on the playground where the mother is shouting at them, use your words, use your words. Yeah, it never works. <laughs>
2: Just it, like calm it down. It's worked. the exact same yeah. thing, right? Just calm down. Destin, <laughs> you said I could say bad words on this.
1: Fuck yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> okay, Perfect. <laughs> So Julie, tell us about, this is always the question of the day, tell us about your absolute worst day in real estate.
2: You know, interestingly enough, my most recent worst day in real estate really should have been my best day in real estate. I closed on a really, really, big property. Had it for a long time. I learned a ton throughout the process. It was supposed to be a really monumental day for me. And when I Mm -hmm. called my client to thank this person, kind of like, you know, the wrap-up call. Yeah. Where I present the opportunity when they say all these wonderful things about the job that I did to say, well, if you know of anyone in your friends or family that could benefit from my expertise, I would really love to have an introduction to them. That's also where they have the opportunity to tell me thank you. And i didn't get one. And it just, you know, acknowledgement for me too is really important. And I don't need everyone to stand up and give me a clapping ovation, although it would be nice because no one's paying me to be fabulous. You know, I took it to heart for about 10 minutes and I thought, all right. So I called my colleague on the property and I said, is there, am I missing something here? Did I do something? Then I realized, you know what? It's half of the time when someone hurts us, it's not about us. Mm. It's, more so a projection of what's going on with them. And perhaps I didn't take my own advice. You know, this client had lived there for a very long time and, put a lot of heart and soul into it. It was a fabulous property.
1: You know, there's four main love languages. There's gifts, touch, words of affirmation, and acts of service. Everybody has their own different combination of works works for them. And for you, maybe words of affirmation is a really good. So when somebody says, you know, thank you for doing that, I really appreciate it. That's a big deal to you. But for like, for me, uh, words of affirmation make me really uncomfortable when somebody says like, mm-hmm. Oh, you're successful, or you're good looking or, you know, not so much. I like your outfit, That's not really me. That's something I'm wearing. But words of affirmation are really tough because I feel like I am then supposed to return those words of affirmation or maybe they're just buttering me up because they want something from me. And so those are really hard for me. Whereas like touch, getting a hug or having somebody touch my shoulder, that says to me, I love you and you're my person. And so Uh I try to remember that just because somebody didn't give me a hug or they weren't comfortable with a handshake doesn't mean that they don't like me, that that's my stuff. And so not getting that thank you that might not be that person's that person's love language but truly that is your love language and so for now on every day I'm going to just shoot you a text and be like I just want you to know you're awesome
2: <laughs> you look fantastic today Justin
1: <laughs> but I think it's one of those really things that like if we look into what our clients love language is we can really start to understand what's going to make them understand that we care about them and maybe it's right. the maybe it's the present for the puppy or maybe it's just a call to say hey I was thinking about you you know our acts of right. service like uh, taking them out to to eat or something. Everybody has their own little thing, you know?
2: Absolutely, I mean, I'm I'm huge on, I don't know why I have to pick one love language, I like all four.
1: There's a test you can take online, it will tell you like which ones are the most important to you and you may score like, you know, really high on three of them and low on one. You said,
2: uh, when someone gives me a compliment, I think, oh, do they want something from me? It's, no, Justin, you're, I'm telling you right now, you're wonderful and you're a joy to be around, you're a snazzy dresser yeah. and gosh <laughs> darn people like you. Thank you. You're welcome, <laughs> see? And when, they, and when you, you, you say thank you, then I get acknowledged for telling you my truth about
1: you. On the flip side, best day. Mm-hmm. Like, when did you know? You were like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is it right here.
2: Oh, from the very moment that I started working with clients. I mean, I'm a people person. I really enjoy the type of work where it's not an instant gratification by any means because i'm a grown ass woman so i have to be patient (laughs) but you know it was really hard you know what i mean it was really hard for me to make a, a switch from a career that I could practically do with my eyes closed. I had a system. I had a process. I had, you know, client retention. This is just a much bigger way for me to help people. And I can still show up and help guide someone and make them feel protected. I think that's really important. I knew that I was in the right base, if you will, when I still felt like I had no idea what I was doing and agents were coming to me asking me, can you please explain to me how you did such and such? And I think, really? You want to know what I did? Why is it for what not to do? That's where, It started, cl- it started clicking with me and I thought, all right, I think I'm amongst my people here. Like I said, I'm very comfortable in high pressure situations. I'm very comfortable with diffusing when people get heightened and and really keeping everything on track. It's just, it's exciting to me. Mm-hmm. I just wish I would get paid to simply be fabulous,
1: quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> <laughs> You're as close as it gets being paid to be fabulous. You're as close <laughs> right. as it gets for sure. Yes. Julie, where can people find you online?
2: Instagram is my jam.
1: Julie Halter underscore SIR.
2: Facebook, of course. You can friend me on Facebook. I have a broker page on Facebook, Julie Halter Broker. LinkedIn, of course, you can add M yeah. D min- million dollar listing in Portland. That's where you can find me. Uh,
1: Julie Halter is a real estate agent with Cascade Sotheby's International Realty in Portland, Oregon. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Amy's going to take you back to the green room. I heard there's some celebrities that stopped by, so we'll see who, who you get to meet. Get back
2: there. <laughs> right this way. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate your time.
1: How delightful is Julie Halter? She's great. Julie is a doll. I loved her
0: story. I love imagining her moving people around in chairs as she probably did a phenomenal job as a stylist and then taking those skills and moving it into real estate, clearly gifted with people.
1: I know that our listeners couldn't see what Julie looks like, but I mean, this is, this may be the most impeccably groomed woman I've seen in my entire life. Like she is put together. <laughs> there is no question. Like, this. and every time I see her, she's so stylish. She's, I'm just like, Oh, she's just beautiful. <laughs> I found that whole conversation about About emotional intelligence, really interesting. And it's been it's been a topic a lot. People have been talking about emotional intelligence. You know, you come from this background of social work. I'm wondering if you could just kind of help me understand. Did we used to call emotional intelligence something else? Was it intuition? Was it gut? What the heck is emotional intelligence from your point of view?
0: Good questions. I mean, I don't know. I think my perspective of being in mental health for so many years, I probably have heard the term and been around that conversation more than most, but I don't know if I've ever sat down to try and define it. So this will be an interesting exercise for sure. (laughs) I mean, for me, when I think about emotional intelligence, it's sort of, are you someone who is savvy in terms of both your own emotions, how you feel, how you operate in the world? (laughs) I just had a flash of like, someone sent my five-year-old like the feelings cards, you know, where you, have like the sad face and underneath it, it says sad. And then the happy face. I mean, I think that's like the baseline where we start with kids in terms of helping them develop emotional intelligence is helping them understand their feelings I also am just thinking about you saying, like, use your words, use your words. I mean, I think, with, you know, to go back to what we were talking about with Julie, I I think sometimes kids don't know what they're feeling and they don't know how to put it into words. So I think as adults, we can help kids understand and create and develop emotional intelligence by naming feelings and helping kids learn to name them and learn to understand, you know, what it is they're feeling also without shame. think so many of us were shamed so much for whatever feelings we were having
1: when we have those emotions that are so overwhelming that we no longer have words to describe them that's when we cry that's when our tears come you know I had a hangout with a couple of buddies of mine last night and there was points during that conversation where it was so emotional that there was nothing else to say but just to cry and that's all we could do when somebody breaks down it's because they've lost the capacity to have words to describe how they're feeling and this is not something to be shameful about. It It just means that we've gotten to a really intense place. I had a very tearful weekend, so.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think, Justin, the fact that you were in this super intense moment with, like, these people around you that also, like, nobody said anything. Y'all just held space for each other. I mean, you were clearly around folks who had a level of emotional intelligence because nobody's trying to be like, oh, it's okay, man, you're fine. Like, there's no, it sounds like y'all just sat together in, like, this intense moment, and, and I think that demonstrates a level of emotional intelligence right yeah. there. So I think it's about kind of what you carry and also how you interpret your own emotions and also what you do with other people's emotions.
1: Right. And so many of us men are told when you cry, that's weakness and that uh, you shouldn't God, cry. Yes. That's not how it's supposed to happen. That conversation yeah. that I had last night was like two of us sitting on the bathroom floor, crying our eyes. Like, so we got in there to like grab tissue uh, papers, like to wipe away the tears. And we ended up just sitting on the bathroom uh, floor for an hour and a half, just like crying it out. And these are friends that I've had for 30 years since high school. And they're there's emotions that you can have with somebody you've known for that long that you can feel vulnerable and safe in front of people that you've known yeah. for that long before. For men to do that, it's really hard for us, really hard for us. It has to get to the point where it is so intense and that we're around yeah. people that we feel really safe with to be able to get to that point. So in your history, do you find that women are better at uh, emotional intelligence than men are?
0: I mean, I, yes, because I think we're just socialized to be better that way. Better. That's not the word I want to use. I think we're just socialized for that to be more acceptable. I feel like Glenn and I have that conversation about our son all the time, who has recently started saying that he wants to be a girl, mm-hmm. which could go a, a million different ways. For us right now, this, the, the reason that he gives for wanting to be a girl is because girls are better. <laughs> I think that some of it is tapping into some of the things that are ready. Like, are we gender police kids from the beginning? Yeah. We feed them things. I'm sure Glenn and I feed him things that we don't mean to.
1: I know we're like gay couples we are supposed to be all progressive and like not do that, and we yes. totally do. No! Yes.
0: I think you have to be thoughtful about everything that you do every moment. Interestingly enough, I was raised with a father and my brother somewhat too, but my dad is a big crier. My dad is super emotional and very intense moments. He definitely is the one who tears up more quickly. My parents aren't together anymore, but they were for many years of my growing up. And my dad was always the one who would do like some sort of blessing at Thanksgiving, and he would be the one that was like weeping. And I sort of watched the different degrees of or the just the different responses to that. And they're definitely like, it's a Romberg male tradition. First, I can say that because whenever my dad gets together with the uncles, like they all do it. They're all very emotional men, which is really interesting for a big Texas family. Like I had the opportunity to sort of see people's level of comfort or discomfort with it. People's level of, of acceptance of it for sure.
1: How old is your son right now? He'll be six soon. So when my son was six, He came to me and we were laying in bed, I was reading a story and he said, I wish we could switch skin. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I wish I was white and you were black. And I was like, well, why is that? And he said, because all the kids at school match their parents. And I said, well, uh. then if we switched, then I would be black and you would be white and we still wouldn't match. And he was like, oh yeah, that wouldn't work, huh? And I was like, well, hold on a second here. Let's put our hands next to each other. So we put our hands next to each other, held our hands up and his beautiful dark chocolatey skin was against my like kind of white vanilla skin. And I said, here's the thing, Dooley. Matching is like the lowest form of design. Like if you just buy two things, they're exactly the same. <laughs> That's like really basic, like the easiest way to do it. But what we do is we coordinate. Look how beautiful our skin looks looks together. And so it's not that we are not as good as everybody else. It's that we're actually better. And he was like, oh yeah, we are, huh? And I was like, yeah, we're better. So maybe I fit, Maybe I stretched a little bit, but you know.
0: <laughs> a little bit weepy right now on so many levels. Like the sweetness of that moment, the fact that you were able to bring design into this very amazing kind of heavy conversation with Dooley, like I, it shouldn't surprise me. Oh, what a moment.
1: You don't expect yeah. your six year old to yeah. suddenly understand that being black is valued less than being white. You don't expect that. And when your son yeah. comes to you and says, I wish I was a girl, maybe this whole conversation of coming down to emotional space, of holding emotional space, is providing your son with that space to be like, well, why would you like to be a girl? Well, girls are better. Yeah. Well, how are girls better? Well, they have better emotional intelligence. Well, okay, let's yeah. talk about <laughs> that. You know, And then you say, well, would you like to wear girls' clothes? Or how would you like to exemplify being a girl? You know, I went to design because that's all I know, honestly. To me, truly, like, Matching isn't as difficult as coordinating is. I think coordinating may takes a lot more work to make that happen. Ultimately it ends up being a lot more beautiful, a lot more interesting than just flat out matching. Like nobody wants to buy the lazy boy set that's the two chairs, the love seat and the couch that comes together as a set. You want to buy things that like, you know, work really well together. Is that all that emotional intelligence is, is providing space in which people can express their emotions and then interpreting them correctly? Is that what it is?
0: No, because I, th- I mean, I think that's a step in it. I think that that helps us on our way to creating emotional intelligence and fostering emotional intelligence in ourselves and in other people. I mean, I think being able to correctly identify other people's emotions and hold on to them and hold some space with them and do that for ourselves is definitely a significant piece of emotional intelligence. I mean, I'm sure there's experts out there who would maybe debate me on different things, but that's always been how I thought of it. The the word savvy keeps coming to mind. Can we move in the world and be a little bit savvy with not only our own emotions, but our friends and family? families and clients emotions. Like, I mean, I think about, (laughs) I think about, let's say I'm having just the worst day at home. Something's been really complicated or I've had a rough morning getting Carlisle out the door something's gone on, you know, and then I go into like a heated negotiation with another agent or a difficult conversation with buyers. It's going to be much better for me if I go into that conversation, understanding the role that my high level of emotion from the morning is going to kind of come through. It's like, you got to know when you need to like who take some breaths or chill yourself out a little bit before you step into things so I Mm -hmm. think understanding the role of your own emotions is so
1: it's just crucial I feel like that deck of cards that your son got that's like you know sad with a sad face like that deck of cards should flood around every single real estate office so that agents can recognize (laughs) These feelings in their clients, and that when they see a sad yes. face, they will be like, "Why are you sad? How can we help? You know, what's yes. going on here?" And you know, yeah. it may also be an oversimplification too, because not everybody who cries is sad. Some people who cry are frustrated. Some people who cry are angry. Some people who cry are overwhelmed with love. Some people are happy, and yeah. so they cry. And so it's it's a very nuanced thing to learn about yes. what those facial expressions mean. There's the tears of happiness face. There is the tears of pain face and that tears of pain face, it is impossible to have that face and not have me join you crying just so you know. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes, absolutely. Amy, where can people find you on the interwebs?
0: I am at (laughs) amyromberg.com.
1: Fantastic. Our producer is Nicole Durkin. Our music was written and performed by Joff Metz. You can find him at 5starguitars.com. I want to say thank you so much to all the wonderful people that have reached out with their stories. If you've got a story that you'd like to tell, reach out to us. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Click on the podcast link. That's the best place to find us to listen. We're really excited to hear your story behind the yard sign. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.